podcast focused on lessons learned via the musician's backstory, as well as building successful careers in the business. My name is Allison M., and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. Let's get down to business. On this episode, I have here over Zoom, uh, coming in from Illinois to Wisconsin, Mark Tonelli. He is a musician, composer, and educator. And Mark, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Allison. Yeah. You know what? I just realized I didn't verify how to pronounce your last name. Did I say it correctly? Perfectly. Okay, great. Um, so, yeah, thanks for being on the on the podcast episode today. And uh, you are a jazz guitarist um, and obviously, like I just said, a composer and educator. Um, can you just tell us, uh, I'd like to start off with what you're currently involved with. Uh, what, what exactly do you do, like, right now, currently, um, during this crazy pandemic time in our lives and... Um, you know, what are you doing tomorrow, for instance, for your work? (laughs) Well, I teach full-time at Millican University. Mm -hmm. Millican is a small private university in Decatur, Illinois, and I am the coordinator of the guitar studies program there. So that's my, you know, that's my, you know, primary gig, we'll say. Uh, Although I always consider myself a performer first, even though I'm an educator, I think what makes me relevant as an educator who teaches primarily performance classes like uh, guitar ensemble, guitar lessons, and other classes I've taught over the years are improvisation. Uh, I've taught, uh, I teach a class called Arts Cafe, which is actually a business that students enroll in for credit in which they learn how to run a live performance venue. So that's kind of the entrepreneurship side of um, the music business that I also teach. And I think all those things really connect or tie into me being a performer. So that's what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm going to get up and go for a run. I usually go for a four-mile run a few times a week. And then I then I go to work and um, and teach, right? I spend a lot of time, a lot more time probably preparing for classes than I actually do in the classroom. So you can imagine if you walk into a class and the lesson seems really well prepared and it just seems, or it just seems very natural, like a very natural lesson that a lot of time probably went into it. Yeah. So that's one thing I'm doing tomorrow. And then I have, a, actually, I'll be in Wisconsin this week. Um, so as you said, I don't, and as I said, I don't live in Wisconsin, though I try to get up there. And in fact, I'll be at Cafe Coda in Madison on Thursday. So another thing I'm doing this week is kind of selecting music for that performance that will happen on Thursday. That's exciting. Yeah. I remember when we first talked, you told me that you do make it to Wisconsin fairly often. And, you know, um, definitely on this podcast, there's a lot of people who uh, we talk with that are not necessarily based in Wisconsin, although Wisconsin Music Ventures, of course, the, uh, you know, the business that is, you know, where this podcast comes out of, of course, works with Wisconsin musicians, but we love talking to other other types (laughs) as well. So, um, but it's nice to know about your connection. So thanks for sharing that. And uh, so, so you were, um, and, and when you're playing at Cafe Coda, what kind of, are, are you playing in a combo? Are you playing solo? What kind of things are you, are you looking to do right now? I'm playing in a trio mm-hmm. uh, at Cafe Coda. That's probably the format I play most in, guitar trio, guitar, bass, drums. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so with me are actually two 
two gentlemen who live in Wisconsin. One's from Wisconsin, Matt Endress. He actually is um, the percussion instructor at um, UW-Madison. Uh, and the other is Nate Leanhard, uh, who lives in, I'm not going to say this right, Racine. Racine, Did I yeah. get close? Racine. <laughs> I've already been corrected on that. Racine. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Racine. So he lives in Racine, and he's originally from Iowa, then lived in New Jersey for many years, where, where we met as as um, as classmates at William Patterson University in, in Wayne, New Jersey. And then Nate and his, and his wife, Noreen, who is from Wisconsin, moved back to Wisconsin. I think they live in uh, Noreen's parents' house right now. And so it's nice to be able to play with them because they're great players. They're also in Wisconsin, so it makes sense for me to use musicians who live in the area because that's more convenient for them. Sure. Um, rather than bring musicians all the way up from Decatur, which is about three and a half, three hours and 45 minutes from from Madison. Right. Um, so and that's what we're doing. So we'll play mostly um, a lot, quite a bit of original music, some Brazilian music. That's one of the things yeah. I'm really into these days. A little bit of Italian music. That's also something I'm into. And then maybe a, a couple of jazz standards. So it's a good mix of those three streams of music. Nice, nice. And you mentioned Decatur. Uh, it, that's where Millican University is. That's the area that you live in, um, which is, yeah, kind of central to, I did look this up after we, we spoke the first time, that's fairly central to St. Louis, Madison, Wisconsin, and what, um, kind of, well, what else was there? Kind of Indiana as well, um, parts of Indiana. Uh, what, what other places do you get to for gigs? I play in St. Louis pretty regularly. I was just down there a couple of weeks ago. Had a couple of gigs at the Dark Room. Mm-hmm. Um, my my trio, it's same same format, different musicians. I used St. Louis musicians on that gig. Um, and then um, I've, once in a while, I get up to Chicago. I had a gig in Chicago a couple of weeks ago as well. Um, I, for a long time, and and somewhat recently, I was doing gigs in Kansas City, Missouri. I lived there for a year before moving to. Illinois. Mm-hmm. And so I developed a lot of connections there. And uh, up until the pandemic, I was going back to Kansas City about once a month for gigs. Mostly, well, I wouldn't say mostly, I'd say a, a good split between playing with other groups and playing with my own group. Once the pandemic started, that work, you know, of course, like everybody else's work dropped off completely. And then really only started to pick up this past fall. And I was there in the fall doing a gig in um, at a club in Kansas City. So those are kind of the places that I work in outside the state. Within the state, I, I have done a lot of work in Peoria over mm-hmm. the years. Peoria is a city of about 350,000 people. Um, I, I think it's kind of one of those overlooked Midwestern cities, um, but people who live in the area kind of know about it and know that it, it has a pretty strong art scene and some of that is music. And so I've done a lot of work um, in Peoria over the years. Uh, and then you know some some other work you know around the area here and there um, and in central Illinois. Yeah, nice, nice. I mean, you're not super close to a, a huge city, but you're but you're kind of close to a whole lot of them. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's exactly right. I, I I should say I'm close to Springfield too, and yeah. I have a gig actually the next day. I have a gig in Madison. And then the, this next, the day right after, a gig in Springfield. That is the state capital of Illinois, of course. Yeah. And I only live 40 minutes. Okay. And it has some music. There's some music going on there. Um, but it's not like, you know, a real heavyweight scene. So, yes. you know, I do some, I do some gigs there. Um, and so, 
Yeah, exactly. That's probably the closest major city, although it, there is more music going on in some of the other cities that are a little bit farther away. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it sounds like a good hub to be to be in for yourself for right now, and uh, and I'll get to some of the other things that you just kind of hinted at uh, shortly. But I do want to find out a little bit more about. Well, um, you, you said that you're a professor at uh, Millikan Indicator. How long have you been working there again? This is my sixth year. I actually just got tenure just uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And that's usually when thank you. That's usually when a professor would get tenure at a university. Yeah. So uh, going into my seventh year in the fall, okay. fall of 2022. Nice, nice. You enjoy the scene there? At Milliken itself? Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah, Milliken is for a small university of only about 2,000 students. We have a little less than 200 in the School of Music right now. And so that represents about 10% of the overall student population. And there is a lot going on in Milliken School of Music. Um, there's no shortage of opportunities for our students. There's jazz ensembles, uh, pop ensembles, musical theater, uh, pit orchestras, classical chamber ensembles, orchestra, choir, um, and then all kinds of you know other chamber ensembles and ad hoc ensembles. Our students are just very busy performing. Um, it's a really vibrant school of music. One that I didn't really know much about until I applied for the job you know, six years ago and then was looking at this video that they had produced, uh, you know, just as a sort of a recruiting tool for students more than anything else. But it wound up really intriguing me. And I called my wife over. I said, look at this place. <laughs> you know, it just looked so cool. I'm like, where, where is this little jewel? <laughs> uh, it turned out it was only about five hours from Kansas City where we were living at the time. And I was really, you know, really lucky to get the job. So it, it, it's, it's as good as it looked, you know, in that video. It really is a place for, where students have a chance to, you know, to pursue a lot of opportunities in a broad spectrum um, of areas of music. The, the musical side, of course, the performance side, the entrepreneurship side. You know, we have a music education program, which is actually very strong. We have literally a 100% placement rate of our music education students into jobs afterwards. So there's really a lot going on at Milliken, and I've been able to, Developed some of my own courses, like the course I talked about a few minutes ago, Arts Cafe. That was a course that I proposed, and within one semester was teaching it, and I've been teaching it now for for five years. And so, uh, you know, I had a faculty, a colleague who told me when I arrived, he said, you will quickly discover that you are the master of your own domain here. And that's been true. I've really been able to do a lot of amazing things working with our students and developing a curriculum for them. So yeah, I, I really yeah. enjoy teaching at Milliken. Great, great. I love to hear that. And it's been so much fun finding out about what you have going on there. I hadn't been too fam familiar with Milliken, but it's, it's just been really great to, to delve into that a little bit with you through you and uh, through some other folks over there. So um, yeah, thanks for sharing. And then I'd like to find out, you know, a little bit more about your background, how you got into music, how long you've been uh, performing on guitar and uh, just, you know, some of the basics. Um, you can go back as far as you would like to divulge with us. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I got the I got a guitar for my seventh birthday from my grandma, who played organ, and uh, I don't want, know why she picked me to be the kid who got uh, an instrument because she has you know she had six children and they each had children and so she had lots of grandchildren, uh, and so she must have seen me watching her play the organ, kind of sitting at this this 
beast, you know, this thing. And I was just fascinated, just watching her, that she could read music. I thought that was pretty cool Mm -hmm. that someone could do that. I didn't know how you did that. I knew it was done. I just didn't know how. It seemed like something magical to me that you could read music. Uh, So she gave me this instrument for my seventh birthday, and she said, Mark, I'm going to give you something special for your birthday. You know, so I wondered what it was, and then it arrived in this, you know, like triangular-shaped box. And so it was mysterious, right? What's in this box? And I opened it up, and there's this half-size acoustic guitar, which is what I learned how to play on after about a year of just kind of playing, messing around with it, not playing anything on it because I didn't know how to play guitar. My mom said, why don't you take lessons? And so I just started taking lessons. And then a couple of years later, I guess I, I guess I must have practiced a lot. Or just practiced well or practiced at all because my teacher called my parents one night, uh, called the house. I didn't know it was my teacher. The the phone rang. My mom picked it up and I could hear her saying, oh, hi. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yes. Okay. And then she hung up the phone. I said, who is that? She said, that was your teacher. And he said, you're his his best student. And I'm only 10 years old at the time. And I see all these adults and teenagers walking in and out of his office um, thinking, I'm thinking to myself, how can I possibly be his best student? He, he has, you know, students that are so much older and have had more time on the instrument than me. But, you know, I guess I took um, took to the instrument, had an inclination for it. I would kind of jump ahead in the lessons he was giving me and come back and say, okay, I did what you told me to do, but how about this? This was on the next page. And he would say, mm-hmm. oh, you practice that too? <laughs> All right, let, yeah, let's hear it, you know, and I, and now as a teacher, I recognize that I realize that that's, that's not typical for a student to do that, to take that kind of initiative. So I just kept with it. You know, I, I kept playing, uh, took classical guitar lessons for a few years. So I am classically trained, although I haven't really played classical guitar seriously since, since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And then I got into rock music and I played in a lot of rock bands in, in middle school and high school and a little bit into my first year of college as well. And then I got into jazz uh, probably around middle school, a little bit after I started playing in rock bands, and just kind of continued with all those three styles for a long time. So then I've done most of them in my career. Not classical as much, although classical has really helped with my technique. It helped teach me about, um, you know, that there are different voices in music. There's a, there's a melody, there's a bass line, and then there's an inner voice. And so that really helped me. Um, I think classical music helped me in that sense as well. I also really liked the Beatles, and I, I'm really lucky that that was one of the first bands I got into because I learned a lot about melody and harmony, um, how to write a good song from from the Beatles, and those were my mom's records, my uncle's records yeah. Yeah. That, that were just around the house. And so my uncle didn't live with us, but he had my mom had, had a lot of his records. And so I had a really was pretty fortunate in that sense to have all these different influences from a pretty young age, which I didn't realize at the time were going to be so important later on in my career. Yeah. And where is it that you uh, grew up again? I grew up in northern New Jersey. And New Jersey is a very small state. So people always say, <laughs> I had a roommate in graduate school who said, you grew up in northern New Jersey? Like, how big is this state? <laughs> it, how, big enough to have a north and south? I'm like, yeah, you know, every state has a north and south, even New Jersey, as small as it is. Although New Jersey is the most densely populated state. So picture a very small state with a ton of people in it, mm-hmm. um, which means there's a lot of traffic and and just a lot of activity all the time and a lot of opportunities, too, because uh, I, I grew up about 15 minutes from New York City. So in another, any other place in the country, when you grow up that close to a major city, you would say you're from that, you know, that city. For example, I went to graduate school near Dallas. And when people say, where did you go to school? I would say Dallas because it was close to Dallas, even though it was only it was 45 minutes away. But 
for some reason uh, in the Northeast, we don't say that. We just say where we're from, you know. And so I'm actually from New Jersey, even though it really is a, a suburb about 15 minutes outside of New York City, literally 12 miles. And so um, that's where I grew up. Yeah, nice. I know some people, uh, some very haughty um, Illinoisans sometimes refer to Milwaukee as a suburb of Chicago and, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I have heard that. <laughs> But it's its own place, right? It's got it its is. own scene. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. We totally have different. our own stuff going on, and usually our baseball is right. better, so, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways. <laughs> but, baseball strike notwithstanding. And, right, and they, they, exactly. And they're, not, they're, not, they're not striking, right? They're just they're in some kind of negotiations, right, that's just going to yeah. drag on forever, right? Yeah, yeah. But we'll take their money every time those Chicago fans come up here and, and take over. And lose to you guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm well, not taking sides here. I'm not, to, I'm not a Cubs or a White Sox fan. I'm actually a Mets fan. So uh, there you go. That, that, that takes me out of the out of the controversy. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, yeah. So where did you go after high school? What what was what was next for you with your music career? Um, I went to college for music, um, and yeah, I get this question: Why did you go to college for music? I didn't want to be a musician initially. I wanted to be a, a doctor. I am a doctor. I have a doctorate in education, but I'm not a medical doctor. And that's what I wanted to do uh, when I was a kid. And then I worked in a hospital uh, as a candy striper. I don't know if that, that term is, exists out here in the Midwest, but at least in the Northeast, yeah. it means like a volunteer. And you literally wear this jacket that has stripes on it, mm -hmm. right? And I don't know where the candy part came from, but um, I did that just to gain some experience. And I decided... That wasn't for me because the, the hospital was a really sad place. I didn't think I could be around that much sadness. And the sight of blood and needles bothered me. <laughs> so I thought maybe I'm not cut out for this career, although I really gained a lot of respect for medical professionals from working in that volunteer position as, uh, as a teenager. Uh, a few years later, I took a mechanical drawing class in high school and thought, oh, I, I want to be an architect. And that was I thought that was really cool. I liked the whole symmetry of making these mechanical drawings. Um, blueprints, basically. But it, it did, that didn't quite work out either for um, different reasons. And so by that point, when I was, I guess, you know, 17 or 18, I had already been playing the guitar for about 10 years. I could already read music really well. I could play different styles. I had played in a couple of pit orchestras for musicals and done other gigs. And I had actually worked a lot as a musician. I think my first paying gig was when I was 13 playing for an eighth grade graduation party and we actually got paid and, and I thought, wow, yeah. you can get paid to do this. <laughs> so, you know, I must've tucked that idea in the back of my mind. And by the time I got to the end of high school, I thought, well, you know, the other professions, architect, a doctor kind of fell away for different reasons and what's left yeah. and music was left. And then I really actually couldn't see myself doing anything else. And I think that's a really important quality mm -hmm. for a musician because if you can't see yourself doing anything else, then do music. But if you can see yourself doing something else, do something else. Because music is a tough career and you really have to have this internal drive that no matter what happens, you're going to make it in the music business. And so I mm -hmm. think music, more than you choose it, chooses you. Um, that might be cliched to say, but I really feel like that's what happened. Music chose me. I couldn't see myself doing anything else. So I went to college for music. I went to... Um, Initially, I went to a school called Montclair State University, which is in Upper Montclair, New Jersey, about 20 minutes from where I grew up. And uh, I went there because I didn't get into the school I wanted to go get into, which is William Patterson University, which has 
easily one of the best jazz programs in the country. Uh, very small, 60 students, very selective. They only take a certain number of students per year to keep the program small. Has an outstanding faculty of like working jazz musicians who live in New York City, and some of them are literally legends. Um, and so I wanted to go there. There was no place else I wanted to go. I wanted to go to William Patterson, and I put all my eggs in that basket. And I didn't get in because I just I wasn't good enough. Um, so I went to another state school for a couple of years. I got some good experience there and reapplied and then got into William Patterson a couple of years later, just barely by the skin of my teeth. I think the I think the directors of the program saw some potential in me. I hope they hope they think all these years later that they that the gamble they took paid off. Um, and then that's really where I cut my teeth on playing jazz was at that school surrounded by uh, an incredible um, group of students who played jazz at such a high level that it just, you know, it forced me to really work hard and learn what it means to excel in that field. Um, and so um, after that, I went to graduate school at the University of North Texas, which has a completely different type of program. I, I wanted to change the scenery. I wanted to get out of New Jersey for a while, and I did that. Um, and uh, I don't know. I don't know if you want to know more about what I did after that, but that's at yeah. least up to graduate school. <laughs> Should I keep yeah. going? Yes, please. Um, I, I actually took a year off between uh, graduate school. After my second year, I was just burnt out with school. I had gone straight through uh, five years of undergraduate between having to transfer between schools, and then graduate school. And I thought I can't do school anymore. I couldn't even finish my 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 uh, graduate graduate degree. So I took a year off. Um, and during that year, I went on a cruise ship and worked as a musician in the ship's orchestra. Actually, two contracts, one in the Caribbean and one in the Mediterranean. Um, and I got to go to all these amazing places around the world, um, work with some great musicians. Um, sometimes they'd bring on celebrity entertainers. So I got to work with, you know, famous people or whatever in those, in those situations. Um, and then when I came back to land in uh, the late 90s, I decided I didn't want to be a musician anymore. This is kind of a little interesting chapter yeah. in the story. And I just thought, I'm just going to do something else. And so I started doing these customer service jobs. I actually worked for the Jaguar Cars corporate headquarters, which is in New Jersey, not far from where I, I grew up. And um, I did that job for about a year. And, I, and it was not like your typical call center job where, you know, you, you picture a warehouse and like 500 people with, you know, headsets on. Yeah. It was just, there was eight of us and two of us worked, worked each um, of four sections of the country. And it was a, a really like kind of niche customer service job. And I learned a lot about business and communication in that job that I still use today. Yeah. Um, that like hiatus from music for, me, for a year proved to be really valuable in my career. Really, one of the best years in terms of just knowing how to talk to people, um, how to deal with difficult situations, how to resolve them, and just how to communicate with people and how to, and to learn what business is. You know, to that musicians want to work a lot; they want to have a career, but often the people that are the gatekeepers that are offering the work are business people. They're they often aren't musicians, or if they are, they just kind of have a passing interest in music. And so like learning how to talk, you know, the world of business is, was really important for me. After that, I um, uh, got married, moved back to Texas, and then finished my graduate degree, and I stayed there for five years. Um, so those were really great years uh, when I lived in Texas. That was like the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. um, and then I took a job in um, 
the West Point Band's Jazz Knights. The West Point Band is a military band, and yeah. I did that job for 10 years. I went to basic training, um, just like a regular basic training, like everybody else in the Army. Um, I, wasn't, I didn't go to like a special band-only basic training. I went to the real deal basic training, <laughs> uh, learned how to fire, uh, fire a weapon and throw hand grenades and all that stuff. And so, yes, I am a trained killer. <laughs> uh, and then I, then I did my job for 10 years working in the Jazz Nights. That was really incredible work, getting pl- paid to play jazz. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a lot of arrangements for that band. We recorded a number of CDs. We toured all over the country. We had, you know who's who of jazz guest artists perform with us. Um, and then I also did a lot of work in the publicity division of the band as well. And so I learned and got to really uh, develop those skills, the marketing side of things. I had already developed them as a freelancer living in Texas, learning that um, you have to be able to promote yourself because if you don't promote yourself, who will? Right. So I kind of just developed those skills even to a greater extent in the West Point band. Um, got out of the Army after 10 years, got my doctorate while I was in there. The Army paid for it. The GI Bill is a beautiful thing. <laughs> and then um, then went to Kansas City for a year. And from there, uh, came here to Illinois to start my job at Millican University. So w- w- I just gave you a, about a 30, 35-year summary of what I've done. <laughs> you can probably edit this later into the parts that you think are <laughs> most oh, relevant. that's great. I was that's so fascinating. You've done so many different things in so many different places. Um, that's that's really, really interesting. Um, and I, I think that you're the first musician that has been on this podcast who has had the military music training. Um, so I'm just curious. Um, so where were you based out of for that again? For the 10 years I was in the Army, I was in one band, mm-hmm. the West Point Band, or the United States Military Academy Band. West Point is a military academy that's a training ground for future Army officers. Most mm-hmm. of them wind up going into the Army. Uh, and that that's a unique position because it's what's called a stabilized position. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you get a position in the West Point Band, you stay in that position potentially for your whole military career, 20, 25. In some cases, I had colleagues that were there for 30 years in the West Point Band. I got there in 2005, and I had some colleagues that had enlisted in the band in the 70s, yeah. <laughs> which is really crazy. Um, and so um, that was what I did for those 10 years, was just be at that one duty station, which is very different from other other military bands and just you know other military personnel who move every two, three, or four years to a different post uh, in the country or different places around the world. And that afforded the band the opportunity to really gel and develop a sound um, by having those same musicians, you know, year in and year out playing together. And also the band was very highly auditioned. Uh, most of my colleagues had master's degree in jazz studies, at least a bachelor's degree. They had had a ton of experience. Um, they were very accomplished musicians. So I was fortunate to play with musicians of that caliber on a regular basis every day. Yeah, that's amazing. So were you primarily playing ceremony music for the grads and, and things like that? Or what other responsibilities would you have? You know, it's, it's really interesting. We got essentially paid to play jazz. We were kind of, you know, the, the military bands, at least the, the special premier bands, which was the type of band I was in. It was called a special band, a premier band. Um, there's a small number of those in the military, maybe a, maybe about a dozen in total, um, across hundreds of military bands. So 
we were kind of a public relations tool, a public relations arm of the military to foster good relationships with civilians. And so we basically just did performances in the local area, the Hudson Valley region of New York. We'd also do run out tours to Pennsylvania, Connecticut, New York, um, a lot, of, a lot of gigs in New York City, lots of work in New York City, work in upstate New York, and then sometimes we'd do tours of uh, other parts of the country. We toured Indiana, New England. Um, we went to Florida a couple of times while I was in the band. Mm-hmm. Um, some elements of the band would go to other places. The band went to Alaska at one point, Texas, you know. So, um, and we would just do performances uh, at Colleges, universities, you know, performing arts centers, the typical places that you'd go see a, a big band play, you know, a okay. jazz big band. Um, we did do ceremonial work. The jazz band would play for what's called a hop. That's kind of an old 50s term, I guess, you know, a, a cadet hop, but really it's just a dance. And so we kind of had some pop music that we would play that was arranged for a big band, or, or although sometimes we would break down into a smaller ensemble of maybe eight or ten people for some of those hops and we you know play more pop oriented music motown stevie wonder things that were current on the charts even some country music at times mm-hmm. um, but that was for most of the time i was in the band a sliver of the job the the, the majority of the job was playing jazz mm-hmm. in concert venues um, and those were actually really great experiences because after those concerts, we'd have the public coming up and talking to us, telling, how, telling us how much they liked the performance. But then often we'd meet people who had been in the military, who had family in the military, and they just they wanted to talk about their experiences or their family members' experiences. And those were like really precious experiences to them. So for them to come up and talk to us and kind of connect with that part of their lives again meant a lot to them. And we would always, you know, begin every performance with the national anthem. We would play a jazz ensemble arrangement of it. Mm-hmm. And we would somewhere in the performance usually play um, like a salute to the armed forces, which was a medley of um, all of the, um, the songs of each branch of the military, the theme song, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And we'd ask people to stand up who were, you know, when they heard their song being played. So somebody from the Marines would stand up when they would hear um, their song being played, somebody from the Navy would stand up when they would hear Anchors Away and so on. And so, um, you know, that you could just see the pride in people's hearts from, mm-hmm. um, from, from being able to do that. And that, you know, really, and, you know, endeared them to our band. And so that, in that sense, it was a really good public relations tool yeah. to kind of improve, not necessarily improve, not that the military has a bad relationship, but to make even better, you know, um, the relationship that the military had with civilians. And so, um, you know, those are, those are, I think that was what the, I think that was what the band was, you know, meant to do. I think that's what its mission was. Uh, and I think it fulfilled its mission pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. And every branch of the military really has their own set of musicians associated with it. Uh, I believe maybe does the Coast Guard have it. I, I, I think that they would, but they might be the one. Oh, yeah. In fact, when I got to the West Point band, yeah, there was a trumpet player who had um, he had reclassed is the term. He would be classed over to the Coast Guard band, which was in it's in New London, Connecticut, only about an hour and a half from West Point, honestly. And so. Um, yes, they have a very good band, and that's another special or, or premier band, the Coast, Park, Coast Guard band. They're, they're really good. That's, I think, just a, 
wind ensemble, if I'm not mistaken, but they're a really good band. Yeah, yeah. It's such a fascinating um, way to, to perform music and to get paid to play music because, um, yeah, you're you're there. And in many cases, it's ceremonial, um, not, not necessarily in your case. Like you said, it's more for PR. Um, I think, you know, in a lot of the field musicians, it ends up being more ceremonial for um for yeah graduations and and other events but uh yeah it's it's just um and then some of the like the president's own um band I, that's that's definitely like the big time ceremonies and things like that um the president's own was that uh that was that's the marine corps correct that's yeah. the marine that's the only yeah. band that doesn't go to basic training yeah yeah <laughs> we used to yeah. look at them and be like ah i wish i'd been in that band because they, they didn't have to go to basic training yeah but, exactly yeah but everyone else is there. Yeah. So thank you for telling us about that. Um, you know, I wanted to um, ask you just a couple of questions about the the business part of, of the music, and then we'll get into some other exciting things that you have coming up. But um, you mentioned the Jaguar dealership. So um, that was really fun to learn about. And, you know, I think that 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 probably was really helpful for you as a musician to be exposed to those business opportunities there. Uh, and those lessons. Um, I, so, where, uh, how do you think you you ultimately found your way into learning the business of music? Um, would it be from all these different pieces of the things that you've done, or you know, from the outside work like that? I think all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, de- de- you know, the, the job at Jaguar, even though it, it's kind of like this little, almost like a footnote in my career, was ultimately was really important. Um, but I think, and I think, you know, working in the publicity division, the West Point band was mm-hmm. helped me as well, learn how to create publicity products, marketing products. Most of it though came OTJ, right? On the job training. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't have a like, you know, do it yourself class as an undergraduate or even a graduate student, even though I got the best education, best music education money could buy. I went to the top schools, right. had the greatest professors, played with amazing students, uh, and this is an, an indictment of those programs, but at the time, that just wasn't on the radar of academia to offer a course of, like, you know, the business of music or how to, you know, do-it-yourself music career. That just wasn't something that um, schools were thinking of at the time. But as technology um, emerged, especially the, the Internet, as, as it, it, the innovations that happened technologically speaking, that changed the landscape. And so, you know, academia had to respond so I didn't get that training, you know, from my generation, like, you know, 90s. Uh, that's mm-hmm. when I went to school, basically, in the 90s. Um, so I learned it on the job. And I remember thinking, okay, now I have this this graduate degree. I have this piece of paper. And it's not the piece of paper. It's what it re- represents. It's the learning and the knowledge that you've developed from these years of study. But I remember thinking, okay, now I have the piece of paper. And that uh, now, now the you know now my career is going to start. Mm-hmm. You know, my career had started really when I was thirteen at that first gig. You know, as soon as you start right. playing, you start learning, uh, learning what the business is about. Well, it didn't. You know, the work really didn't come pouring in after my graduate degree. I don't know why I thought it magically would just mm-hmm. start. You know, like a, people. You know, there would be this kind of message that went out. Mark has his graduate degree now. Start calling him for work. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, learned pretty quickly if I wanted to have opportunities, I would probably have to create them myself. 
And as I talked with friends, you know, from schools, I, I, from the schools I'd gone to and just other friends in the business that I would run into on gigs and, or hire, we'd have this discussion and they were feeling the same way. Like, you know, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Um, and if I don't, you know, make these opportunities, if I don't develop these opportunities to play, to perform, I'm probably not going to have them. And so that's kind of what I learned along the way is that if you want to have a sustainable career in music, you're going to have to create it. So I think that's where most of my training came from. But, you know, I, I learned it the hard way. In some ways, it was good to learn it the way I did as a freelancer um, because it taught me what it took to, to create opportunities for yourself. But it might have been nice if I had known that before I graduated. So that became a really important component in my career, a really important aspect of it, that I, when I went to, to, when I was a doctoral student, that became the topic essentially for my dissertation. I wanted to be able to bring this learning back into the classroom for my students to kind of pass this learning on to the next generation to help them maybe avo avoid some of the pitfalls that I stepped into and maybe have that advanced knowledge and already practice knowing what it would take to create this music career. Mm -hmm. So I guess to kind of come back to the, your initial question, I learned most of it on the job mm -hmm. with, along with a few other pieces and, and then have, you know, since passed that on to my students. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. And, and so what are some of the biggest lessons that you think you've learned along the way from, from learning on the job? Again, that you create your own career. Mm -hmm. um, there isn't a really direct path for a performer or a composer or somebody on the artistic side of the business. So at Milliken, we have, we have what's called a commercial music degree where you kind of, it's kind of half performance and half recording technology. And there isn't really a direct path in either one of those, those fields. And it's not like you go to a career fair where jazz clubs and recording studios set up, you know, uh, a booth or a, you know, a, a kiosk or whatever, and you can go over and pick up their brochures and they're trying to recruit you. You know, it's not like if you were an engineer or uh, some other kind of profession, they do that. And you can often get picked up right out of undergraduate school, you know, working for like American Express or some, you know, some other, you know, ADM or something like that. It doesn't really work that way in music. Um, in fact, it's just the opposite. There's, there's way more, um, there's, there's way, there was way more many people who want to be musicians than there is demand for them. There just aren't enough places for all the people that want to want to be musicians. So, you know, that was a, a concept that I had to learn that you, you'll have to create these opportunities for yourself. Um, I kind of lost my train of thought here for a second, Allison. So you asked me, what was the question you asked me? So the, the, the lessons, lessons that you learned along the way. Yeah. 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 yeah creating, creating your own career. Um, yeah, just recognizing that if you want to have work, it's not probably not going to come to you. Have I gotten work over the years from referrals? Of course. You know, every musician does. Um, and hopefully the longer you're working in music, the more referrals and recommendations you get for work. But even the best musicians, you know, really the top musicians, wind up creating opportunities for themselves and recognizing that that's how you're going to have um, a career. So if you're waiting for the phone to ring, you could be waiting for a long time. You know, it's going to ring eventually, but probably not with the frequency that you want it to with offers for, for work that are, that are going to put food on the table, you know, and pay the rent. So that's the that's the big lesson. You create your own career. Yeah. And just recognizing that, knowing that is huge, knowing that you're going to have to do it. 
Uh, somebody, you know, I've heard somebody say you should add a line to your CV every month. I think that makes sense. And then um, I think if you're an independent musician, which is kind of the term that's, you know, come to be these days, you probably should be doing at least one thing for your career every day, whether it's sending an email to a potential, you know, a club owner or arts center executive director or um, making some kind of pro social media promotional video or practicing a piece that you're working on or getting out there and seeing other musicians. That's another lesson. You, if you want to work, you have to go where the music is. Mm -hmm. um, and so if you want to meet other musicians and other people who are in positions to give you work and hire you and create a network for yourself, which is huge, right? In music networking, it's mm -hmm. who you know or who knows you. You have to go where the music is. So every day you should be doing at least one thing that moves the needle a little bit, that moves your career forward just a step, even a half step, mm -hmm. a baby step, something that's moving your career forward every day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Really good advice there. Um, so, you know, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but are there some challenges that you can think of that, um, were really, that, that really stood out for you along the way, uh, in your, in your music, um, study or in your career, uh, and, and how did you get through them? Yeah, probably the biggest challenge for most musicians is rejection, mm -hmm. just not having enough work. Um, not working as, as often as you want to, the work not paying what you want it to pay, the work not being the kind of work you want, having to do other types of work, uh, whether that's non-music work or music work that isn't the thing you really want to be doing, you know, that isn't the style you really want to be playing or with the people you really want to be performing with. Um, and then knowing how to take that rejection in whatever form it comes and internalizing and figuring out how can I do this better the next time. Um, I guess one thing that I, if the, you know, if somebody is, if the average way to do something, if there's an average way to do something, a way that typically people do it, I would, I'm probably the, the opposite of that. I probably <laughs> do things my own way. I've probably, um, I've really just kind of done what I wanted to in much of my career in kind of the way I wanted to do it. You know, I did have to, to a certain extent, conform to some of the norms and the conventions of the, of the music industry if I wanted to continue working. But I kind of just did what I wanted to do and figured out how to make it work. Um, so I think that's an important part of it, like not giving up, being really persistent, being resilient um, and learning how to internalize that that rejection, that no, uh, you know, whatever it is. And often, I guess what I was leading up to is if I couldn't go in the front door, I'd go in the back door. Mm -hmm. right? So if the typical way to get into this venue was, I'm just making something up hypothetically, but you know, apply on the website and, you know, mm -hmm. and send us your, your promo kit and you, know, and you wait around for two or three months and nobody gets back to you after all these emails, then I would you know, go the back door, which is, do I know anybody? And maybe this is the front door way that I should have been going in the, the, whole, the whole time, but do I know anybody who has worked at this place? Mm -hmm. Let me see if they can get me a referral into this particular venue. Or maybe I'll just go down there and talk to somebody, you know, and try to meet, you know, somebody who's in a position to give me some opportunities and, you know, kind of be, you know, friendly, persistent, but friendly. Mm -hmm. So I, I try not to take no for an answer. Sometimes no eventually is the answer and you have to recognize when you've reached the point of diminishing returns with a, a particular opportunity that you're pursuing. But I think a lot of it is just the law of averages, right, which says if you do something for long enough, if you persist at something long enough, 
eventually you will make it happen. That staying power, uh, I think, is one of those things you really have to have as a musician and realize it about yourself that you're going to have to have this you know, this stick to itness if you really want to have a career in the music industry. Uh, so I think that's one of the challenges is recognizing that about yourself and then actually putting it into practice. I think most musicians, I'll, I'll speak for myself, have had days where I thought, I just don't want to do this anymore. I'm t- you know, tired of the, uh, it's, it's so hard to get work or, you know, because it's very seasonal, you know, right around after Christmas, it drops off like crazy because all the venues have spent all their money, uh, you know, on, on the holidays. And so you have to have multiple streams, other things that you're doing, so that you can fill in those gaps that, that come along as, as, the, as the industry you know, goes through its, its seasonal cycle. And those, those times when, the, when work is low and you're, you know, your, your morale and your self-esteem are low, you have to find other ways to push through. So that's really where developing resilience is such an important part of being a musician. Yeah, I do want to get to um, to what you are. You're really looking forward to some some big travels here soon. And uh, you know, before I actually ask you about that specifically, um, you you touched on uh, or told me to about some Italian, the Italian and Brazilian music that you um, kind of grew up around or were influenced by. Um, would you like to kind of start off with that? Sure. Yeah, you asked me where I grew up. I grew up in, in northern New Jersey, but I was actually born in Rome, Italy, and I came to the U.S. when I was four. Wow. So I spent, a, you know, four years in, in Italy, and that was my first language, Italian. <laughs> my dad is from Italy, and my mom's from the U.S., and she moved to Italy when she was a young woman and met my dad there and then they got married and then stayed in Italy for eight years. And four of those years, uh, you know, after four years, they, they had me. And then, then they came to the U S and they've, you know, and they're still in the, the house where I grew up in, in New Jersey. Um, but you know, I've gone back many times to visit my family in Italy. When I worked on a cruise ship, one of our ports of call was Civitavecchia, which is the port city for Rome. It's about an hour and a half. So I was able to go back several times to visit my family there. Um, My parents even came on board on one of those cruises and were with me. And we kind of surprised all my relatives in Rome. They thought I was just coming in by myself to meet them. And all of a sudden, my parents jumped out from behind like a pillar. And there they were. And it was really fun to have that reunion they weren't expecting. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, I've over the years, you know, I've gotten to to learn a lot of that music from um, from Italy. Uh, my dad's, my parents are opera fans. So, you know, they, I listened to opera a lot. They took me to some operas. I got to see Luciano Pavarotti when I was a kid. I didn't appreciate it at the time, but I'm <laughs> glad I got to see him now. Um, that was the last place I wanted to be on a Saturday night was watching an opera singer at 13 years old, but I'm really <laughs> glad I got to do that. Um, and then my dad would sing a lot of the pop music that he grew up with. You know, he'd be washing the dishes after dinner, and he'd just be singing these songs. And he'd often say, hey, Mark, do you know this song? And he'd just start singing this song. And, I, you know, by the time I was a teenager, I knew all those songs because he had sung them so many times. And then we would go back to Italy. Um, we'd, you know, have family gatherings with my family, and they would play a lot of these songs. Or we would go out someplace, and those songs would be on the radio 
or there's a thing in, in Italy, in Rome, called Il Campeggio, which is like a summer camp that you go to that happens on the beach, and they have all these bungalows that you can rent for like a month at a time, and a lot of families will do that. And the music that they play in the discotheques, which is what they call the discotheques at night, are often these, we're often these pop songs that my dad had been singing. It'd sort of be like us listening to classic rock here. That's kind of what that music was at the time. So that just kind of seeped into my DNA. It's always really been there, I guess. And, um, you know, four or five years ago, I decided I wanted to start playing some of that music. And so I arranged quite a number of pieces from like, you know, the 60s era pop music in Italy, some a little bit later, some, some in the 80s, and kind of arranged it for my jazz group. And we've been playing it ever since. I, I did a recital here, a faculty recital at Millican, which was called The Italian Experience. And I, mo all the music I played, I think except for one piece, was all Italian music, pop music from those, from those decades. And then a piece I wrote uh, called Eternal City, which is kind of an homage to my birthplace of Rome. And it, um, in the piece itself, the piece is programmatic, and it, I, I, I try to recreate some of the sounds of the city and in the, the musical elements that I use in the piece. And I don't know if you're going to play that piece, uh, Allison, at wow. some point, but that's, that's a little kind of story behind that song called Eternal City. So that has been an important thing. The, one thing led to another, and uh, I started getting work playing at Kansas City's Italian Festival, which is this massive event that attracts like 100,000 people over a couple of days. And part of the event is they feature Italian music. So I've been invited to play on that a few times with my group, and we'll play jazz arrangements of these Italian pop songs. Um, and people really seem to like it. Um, some people know the songs, some people don't know them, some people come for the jazz part of it, some people come for the Italian part of it, but it's been really gratifying to merge those two parts of my life, the, the personal, the, you know, the heritage, my Italian heritage, and then the jazz music, which I enjoy playing. And that's always a fun challenge to try to take a song that nobody would think of as a jazz song and then try to reimagine it um, for a jazz group. Yeah, and turn it into one. Yeah, that's... And I um, and, and thanks for talking about Eternal City. We will play that at the end of this podcast. So after we we're done with the talking, but um, yeah, I, I, now that you mention it, uh, and I'm, I don't know why I didn't put that together earlier, but yeah, I can I can see it. You know, I can see Rome right there. I, I've been there, and now I can see it like through the music. So um, very very cool. Uh, so tell me more about the the Brazilian music though, and how that fits into the picture. You know, as I thought about it, I probably have liked Brazilian music for almost as long as I've liked Italian music. When I was a kid, my mom had a record called The Wonderful World of Antonio Carlos Jobim. And mm -hmm. Jobim is probably the most well-known, the most prolific Brazilian pop music composer. Although the music he would compose sounds more like jazz or, or Latin music to us. It's really considered pop music in Brazil. Um, and most jazz musicians, I would say all jazz musicians, learn Brazilian music as part of their, you know, their training. It's part of their repertoire. There are at least a half dozen bossa novas and sambas that jazz musicians play on a regular basis. And so if, if you want to play jazz, part of that training is learning this beautiful music that comes from Brazil. And so when I was a kid, my mom had this record of, of Jobim tunes. Um, I don't remember her playing it, but I'm sure she must have because years later... Really, when I, when I talk about years later, I really mean only like a few years ago, maybe a couple years ago, I was listening to some music from that record, and it sounded 
it sounded so familiar. It sounded like I had always known that music. And so I think she must have played it when I was a kid. I do remember looking at that record and wondering who this guy was on the cover um, and what Jobim meant. And, you know, I was like a very little kid, five, six years old, seven years old. And I could, you know, barely read, so I didn't even really know what I was looking at. But um, I, as I got older and started getting into jazz, I started learning some of this Brazilian music. And I became friends with uh, a Brazilian Brazilian guy who had just arrived in the U.S. about six months earlier when I was about 20 years old. And he was going to a jazz camp that I was going to as well. And we became friends. He's a guitar player as well. And actually, his name is Claudio, and he's had a great career. He was Julio Iglesias' guitarist for a long time. Wow. He's been in Miami. So yeah, he's, he's had a great career. Really proud of him. Um, and But we became friends, you know, as 20-year-olds before our careers ever got started, really. Or at least, you know, in a the professional full-time sense. And we were playing with this bossa nova one day. And afterwards, he said to me, he said, Mark, you really, learn how to, you really have to learn how to play the bossa nova, like, the right way. I said, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, show me how to do it. Yeah. So he wrote it. He wrote, like, the basic bossa nova pattern down on a piece of paper. He said, just, just start with this. And so that opened my eyes to the fact that there is something authentic about bossa nova music and that it, it deserves to be played in a way that is 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 authentic and is real and is the the way it was you know it should be played just like you know jazz has specific elements that you really learn how to play and um, and do and so Brazilian Brazilian music was the same way so that kind of opened my eyes and just over the years I continued absorbing this music and eventually I heard some of the original Brazilian versions of these songs because up to that point most of what I had been hearing was instrumental. And then occasionally I would hear a vocal in English. And then eventually, I think in my early 20s, I heard some of the Brazilian, uh, the, the Portuguese lyrics, I should say, the Brazilian versions with Portuguese lyrics. And I thought, wow, what is this beautiful language? It sounds like Italian, but it has its own you know, sound, a lot of nasal sounds that are um, part of the language and just a certain, you know, sotaque, which means accent, a certain accent. I was like, what, what are they saying? You know, I wonder if the translation to English is literal or, you know, close to literal, something different. So I began researching the lyrics and discovering that in pretty much every case, the original Portuguese lyric was better than the original, than the, the translation into English, that it was deeper, that um, it was more interesting. And I thought, who are these people that write this beautiful music with these profound lyrics? I want to go to this place. Mm -hmm. And so I just started researching Brazil and looking at these pictures of Rio de Janeiro um, and these you know, famous places on the, on the praia, on the beach, the Pão de Açúcar and the Cristo Redentor statue and these just marvelous places. And I thought, I want to go to this place someday. And it had been my dream, really, really for 30 years I'd wanted to go to Brazil. Mm -hmm. And I kept learning about the, the culture and researching more of the lyrics. I played in a Brazilian band for short time when I lived in New York. And so I expanded the styles, the different Brazilians. And there's a lot of styles. It's funny because when you look at, at when you get a chart, you know, as a jazz musician, it might say on it Latin, or it might even say Brazilian, which is like getting a chart, which would be like giving a chart to a Brazilian or somebody from South America that has the word American on it. Play this mm -hmm. in an American style. What's American <laughs> music, right? There's yeah. so many things, right? There's blues, there's soul, there's jazz, there's funk, there's rock. You know, what does American mean? So... You really 
learn as you delve into this Brazilian music that even within it itself, Brazilian music, which seems like it must be its own, you know, unique style, there are subgenres and substyles that you learn. And so I began to explore those. I was studying out of a, a famous Brazilian guitar book called The Brazilian Guitar Book <laughs> by uh, a Brazilian guitarist and educator named Nelson Faria. Um, Nelson has a, this fantastic YouTube channel called Un Café Lá em Casa, which means a coffee at home. It's like it's like he's just hanging out with other famous Brazilian musicians, and they're, like, they're having a coffee in his living room, and then they're playing music. It's like a national treasure. So for anybody who's interested in that um, in Brazilian music, that's one place to go. To, he literally has everybody that's alive and that's living, that's famous as a Brazilian nice. musician on that show, and they perform and they talk. So I learned a lot watching his show about Brazilian music. And then I started studying the language a few years ago and really, really got into it. And it became like a second passion for me. Like I practiced my Brazilian a couple of hours a day the way I practice my guitar a couple of hours a day. And so taking courses online, I have conversation partners in Brazil and so on. And to to finally get to the, the question you were asking about is that I'll be going to Brazil uh, this spring um, as a Fulbright scholar. Fulbright is basically the the U.S. government's international exchange program, and it sends academics and students um, to countries around the world um, to, um, you know, to encourage relations, international relations, and often that happens in, through, through academia. So I'm going to teach at a Brazilian university uh, for, this, for their semester, and I'll teach the courses I basically teach here, uh, jazz, yeah. Um, guitar and then music entrepreneurship yeah. um so and then yeah it's very exciting i'm taking my family you know married have three kids three teenagers uh so that'll be a real adventure for our family and we'll be yeah. there for five months and so in that uh, dream fulfilled you know hopefully you know fingers crossed everything works out but yeah I, I think it will and so that will be a dream fulfilled you know several decades coming and then even better to have my family with me. That was never part of the dream, you know, when I was a 20-year-old. I never envisioned <laughs> that. But to have my family with me is going to make it even extra special. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really, really fun. And uh, you just couldn't help but work for the government again, I think, is really what it comes down to. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, that's, a, that's a good point. It's, it's, not, it's really like, it's interesting because the a Fulbright grant, you're not really working for the government, although you are yeah. representing, yes, you know, the yeah. U.S. kind of as an... Uh, as an ambassador in a way, it's a grant. So they, you know, you apply yes. for it and then they just give you, they give you the money and you do everything else. You make all the other arrangements, the, the uh, flight reservations, you, you, you rent your own apartment, everything, you do everything yourself. They just say, here's the money to do that. Um, and, you know, go do this project and you have to apply with a project. And my sure. project was to, was to be a visiting professor at this university. But yeah, yeah, yeah here I am back, back with the U S government again. <laughs> yeah. We're just here to help. That's what the, that's the government. Right? <laughs> No, just here to help. Totally joking with that. No, I'm so excited for you. And I mean, what are you most looking forward to on this trip? Everybody's asked me that question, and everything is the answer. Uh, it's just such an incredible experience. I think just getting to know the country, that's the first mm -hmm. thing. Just getting, go there, see it, finally seeing it in person, having my feet on Brazilian soil, um, speaking in Portuguese every day. Just, I, I love to do it. Um, any chance I get, I speak in Portuguese now. Um, just going to do that. I think probably my brain's going to hurt for the first few days because I'm okay speaking for an hour or two at a time with conversation partners, but having to do it for the whole day 
And that, that I think will be an interesting challenge at first. So I guess eventually I'll adjust. And then just, you know, being there with my family, you know, having, having them have this adventure. I don't think most people get to do something like this. Um, and so, and I don't think that we'll probably have, you know, I, I did an interview recently where somebody said, do you think this will be the only time you'll get to go to Brazil? I said, yes, as a family, I think so. Because um, our oldest is going to be graduating. He's got one more year of high school. And after that, I think it will be hard for him to, you know, leave college and, you know, go with his family for an entire semester abroad. So I think this is the, you know, the only time we'll get to go as a family. And so that will be, you know, really cool. So I'm looking forward to all those different things, just learning about Brazilian culture, you know, firsthand and um, playing with musicians. I'm literally just yesterday was starting to arrange gigs down there. And so um, in addition to teaching, I'll be doing a lot of playing, playing concerts, um, actually traveling to other parts of Brazil as well. So I'll be based in Uberlândia, which is a city. It's actually the second largest city in Minas Gerais, which is one of the bigger states. Pelé, for example, the soccer player is from mm -hmm. Minas Gerais. Mm -hmm. I'll be based there at the university there in that city, but then I'll be traveling to Brasilia and uh, Recife, which is in the in the northeast, and hopefully in Sao Paulo, which is about six or seven hours away, to do gigs and some recordings and to do workshops with students at other universities. So I'm looking forward to that part, too, to just get to know the country and, and mm -hmm. to see all these different places. Yeah, yeah. And what do your kids think about this? Depends on the day. <laughs> <laughs> um you know, whenever we tell somebody about this, everybody always says, what an amazing opportunity for you. Aren't you so excited? Um, I, th I think they are excited in varying degrees about different parts of it. Uh, we have one kid who's not, who doesn't look flying, so he's not so excited to get on a plane for 10 hours. Um, and, you know, and our kids have friends here, so they're, they're, I think, a little bit concerned about leaving their friends behind. Although today with, you know, like technology, you know, FaceTime, yeah. Zoom or whatever, you can really stay in touch with your friends like never before. It's not the same as being there in person, of course, but, you know, they'll, they'll be able to stay in touch with their friends. It's not like they'll never see them again or, you know, they'll have to just write letters as pen pals. They'll, you know, they'll be able to, you know, do their Snapchat or whatever they, they do. Right, um, right. So, you know, they're, they're, I, think they're, I think they're excited. They're apprehensive a little bit because to just kind of pick up and move to, to another continent for five months after having not really knowing the language and never having been there before. They have, they have some, um, some reservations, but, you know, my wife and I are, are trying to convince them that this will be a great experience for them. And hopefully they'll see that as they get older and hopefully they'll see that as they're there too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure they will. Absolutely. Yeah. Very fun. And, um, so what kinds of gigs, like what is a, a jazz guitar's typical gig, gig like in, in Brazil, is it uh, the same as around here, where it's kind of, I mean, cabaret style kind of music, or or what? How do they use their jazz musicians? The, they don't have that much jazz in Brazil. That's one of the reasons they really wanted me to come there was to bring jazz. Um, and in fact, that's the name of my project: an American nice. in Brazil. Um, Bringing Jazz and Entrepreneurship to Uberlandia. That's the name of my, my Fulbright project. Right. Um, so I think I'm bringing something that they don't have that much of. Um, in some of the bigger places, especially Sao Paulo, which is the, the commercial capital, it's the financial 
capital of South America, basically, and it's very similar to New York City from all, all accounts, from all Brazilians I've met, and they said it's very similar to New York City, those who have been there. That has a pretty strong jazz scene, and I've heard some recordings of Brazilian jazz musicians from Sao Paulo, and they sound really good. Um, they, they sound really good. And they would play in this, you know, similar place that we would play here. They have jazz clubs or a restaurant that has a stage in it or performing arts center. Mm-hmm. And those are the kind of gigs I'm, I'm um, starting to put together now is um, in Uber Lounge. Here there's, you know, some bars. They say bar. It isn't a bar the way we think of here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably a little, I don't know, a little fancier, a little nicer, a little bit more expansive. Um so, you know, they'll have music, you know, have live music at those types of places. I'm also working with uh, a what they call a municipal conservatory, which I think is basically just like a, a music school that's like a city music school a couple of hours away in a city called Patos de Minas, which means Minas Ducks. <laughs> <laughs> or a duck, mines, ducks of mines. It's, it's, it's a strange translation. You can't always translate these things literally. Yeah. Um, and they would like me to come there and do a performance and then like a workshop, like an improvisation workshop. And I think they have a theater there. So, um, you know, it's those pretty, I think the gigs are probably pretty similar in that sense. And, you know, one of the things I'm looking forward to is playing their music as well. You yeah. know, um, everybody thinks every Brazilian musician is an expert in bossa nova and samba, just like <laughs> they think every Brazilian isn't, you know, as a soccer player or every Brazilian, you know, is a, spends time on the beach. I, you know, a, there's some stereotypes there that might have a, a kernel of truth. But, you know, most of the time, you know, they're, 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 they have a hugely varied culture. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a history of slavery, just like we did. It, it was actually worse than our country. And it, it, mm-hmm. it started sooner and ended later. Um, but that, there are also some really beautiful byproducts of that in terms of the influences on the music and on their culture and food. So they have really um, embraced a lot of African culture. Um, and then they also um, have, have had waves of immigration from Europe and from other from from Asia, and so they have these huge, this really wide mix of cultures there, um, and so this, and of course they have Portuguese, uh, many Portuguese descendants because the the, the country was originally mm-hmm. colonized by mm-hmm. um, by the Portuguese in the 1500s, so they have this incredible mix of cultures from literally all around the world, which plays out again in their clothing. And their food and their and their music, you know, samba is really like an African rhythmic style, um, and bossa nova is really like, you know, the a- African beat with jazz American jazz harmony. And so it's real, really mm-hmm. fascinating to think about all of those things, um, and to go there and just learn about all these, you know, these this, this you know, really diverse people, you know, yeah. diverse peoples that they have in Brazil. Yeah, awesome. Well, Mark, is there anything else that we didn't uh, discuss here today that you would like to touch on? Uh, I don't know. We we kind of covered. You, oh, you did ask me if I have uh, any favorite venues I performed. Yes, in. yeah. Uh, that's so hard to, to say. Uh, I, I thought about it. I mean, I've gotten to literally perform all over the world it's it's funny i did a tour of the ukraine it's not funny but in a sense especially in light of what's yes. happening but i did a tour of the ukraine when i was about 20 years old and we performed in the kiev conservatory yeah um and that wow. was six months after the fall of communism 
and wow. we were among the first Americans to come there and perform. And we got standing ovations every night, and the people just had never seen anything like what we were doing, which was like a Broadway style, you know, review. And is that had, building still there right now? I, I hope so. It's the mm -hmm. Kiev Conservatory, you know, right there in the heart of the the capital, Kiev, mm -hmm. um, across the street from our hotel, the Hotel Krishatik. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I haven't haven't read any news reports of whether that that building is still there. I sure hope it is. Um, I would imagine even if it is, that most of the residents have fled. And mm -hmm. I wouldn't blame them, of course. So um, we had a relationship with a theater on Podol. That was um, that's the name of the street, Podol. So there was literally a theater on Podol Street, and um, we had an exchange program. That was one of the benefits of going to Montclair State, even though I didn't get into my chosen school, William Patterson, at first. I got to tour the Ukraine and then Holland the following week as a member of this pit orchestra. Wow. Um, you know, so sometimes these unexpected twists and turns you have in your life take you down paths that wind up being, you know, that giving you opportunities you wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah. So um, it's really you know, hard to say, but because I've literally played all around the world and in some really incredible places. And I'm going to go to another incredible place here, you know, next month. But yeah. the ones I chose, the, the answer that I gave were, were local. Uh, I came up with two. One's called Rhythm Kitchen, which is in Peoria. And I was playing there about every month with my trio. Um, they haven't had music very much since the pandemic. And I hope if anybody out there is hearing this that lives in, in the Peoria area, that you go out and support Rhythm Kitchen because uh, it's called Rhythm Kitchen Music Cafe. They have really great Cajun food there, a wonderful atmosphere um, with really neat art on the walls, and, and then just live music, and often it's jazz. The, the staff is super friendly, and um, the people come in there, and they love to hear the music, and it's always packed because the, the food is great, the, the staff is wonderful, the owners are really great people. And then people love the music. So I loved playing there with my trio. That was a really um, something I enjoyed doing. And then I had a steady gig for a couple of years in Arlington, Texas, when I lived in the Dallas area. For two years, I played every Saturday night at a place called My Martini. It was this you know, martini bar that had a restaurant with what the um, owner called eclectic Asian, really delicious Asian food that had kind of like this twist to it. Um, so like traditional Asian dishes with some kind of a twist um, and they had a stage and they wanted jazz and just it was one of those things where we just were kind of in the right place at the right time but because we were out looking when I say we I had a, a, a friend that helped me that would play with me that you know helped me look for gigs and 